Now, last week, I asked you guys to remember something that I said. Do you, any of you remember? Remember I said, remember that. Remember I said that. So, that's, that's meant that you should all have written that down and underlined it. Like, remember... I wrote it down, but I can't find my notepad. Teleology. Well, no big problem. We don't. No? Teleology runs into eschatology. And that's what's that? Thank you, Mike. Well, it's two parts. Because at least it shows me that you pay attention. Yes. So, remember that. But I don't think that was it. No, 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 that one is a good one. We'll, we'll keep repeating that one. Okay, it's okay. Don't worry. It will probably come up again. Do you remember it? No, that's why I'm saying <laughs> 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 uh, So what we were doing, we were at the end of Genesis chapter 1, near the end, and we were on day 6. And uh, what we found so far is that we found a, a sequence. What we have is uh, ordinal numbers, yeah? 1, 2, 3, 4... Five, six, and uh, an ordinal number is is something that marks something like first, second, third. Okay, cardinal is what you can with one, two, three. Okay, so that's important because an ordinal number is telling you something about the day. It's the first day. It's the second day. You see, and so what? That's what we have here, um, and. We have this, this sequence, therefore, from a beginning state, light, all the way up to the creation of man and woman. On um, the second half of day six, and uh, what we have here then is a preparation for the arrival of man. You see that? Um, God always works things out in order. Now I know that that doesn't always seem like it in personal experience, but he does. And also your personal experience with God has been, it looks erratic, and then everything just comes together perfectly, doesn't it? Like, he did know what he was doing all this time. Um, and so here, what we have is a clear preparation for the arrival of man. This is very significant because when he's given dominion uh, in verses 28 and following over what has been made, I hope that you can see that what man is invested with, and not woman, uh, man there in verses 26 and 27 means man and woman. Um, what he's been invested with is like a vice-regency 
for God, a representative for God in God's world. Now, this brings up an interesting uh, theological, somewhat philosophical issue. And that is, God is not physical. God is not physical, um, but he's created a physical world. And the physical being that is on the world, man, he has made in his image. So, this means, you see, as we saw last week with, with love, being committed to the object that, uh, that goes after all makes, creates. And this means that God is committed to the physical, material world, cosmos, that he's made. Now, that means that heaven is not this ethereal cloudland, um, you know, where we're all wraiths, you know, whisking our way around heaven for eternity. We're solid people with the bodies that we're supposed to have. United to the souls that we're supposed to have, although we haven't got that yet. It, it means that in um, in speaking of man and dealing with man as a physical being on a physical object, the planet Earth, with physical things created for him, that the biblical worldview is committed to the goodness. Peter seven times, of uh, the physical material world. Now you say, well, so what? Because in the ancient world, many of the worldviews were not committed to that. The Greek worldview, the Platonic worldview, for example, uh, held that the body was the prison house of the soul. That in order to get to the realm of ideas, back to the realm of light and so on, the, uh, the ethereal realm, you had to escape this body, this material world. So, uh, the material was thought to be, if not evil, and in some worldviews, Gnosticism, for example, um, the material world was evil, that's why there could not be a physical resurrection, okay, within Gnosticism or uh, Greek thought, or uh, at least in Platonic thought, uh, Neoplatonic thought, uh, Platon- uh, sorry, the material world was reckoned to be definitely second rate. So we don't want to be, you know, okay with second rate. We want first rate stuff. And the first rate stuff, according to the Greek worldview, was immaterial, incorporeal. And that's very often the way that we kind of see things too, because we've been influenced by that Greek worldview. But that is not the worldview of the Bible. The worldview of the Bible is certainly that the material world is extremely important and it has its own integrity. So when God, who is a spirit, creates the world and he creates the cosmos and everything like that, the world has its own integrity built into it. Um, in other words, it's not... Um, its, its essence is not made up of the fact that God says it's good. Uh, its, its essence is made up of the fact that, that God made it good. And all he's doing is, is looking at his work and identifying it as good. Do you see that? There's a difference between those two approaches. Um, 
So this means that God uh, has a, a good, a well thought out plan. It involves the material creation. And even though things go awry in chapter 3, God knew what he was doing when he created the world in chapter 1. Which means that when we get to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth are not ethereal either. They are physical places or physical beings. Okay? Uh, this world also, this globe, is extremely important. This is the place, this is the theatre, as it were, of the outplay of God's program. So again, let's keep in mind, well, we've got to develop this thing a lot, but uh, let's keep in mind the fact that um, even though a person passes on, that their physical body dies, and their spirit goes to be with Christ, to be with Christ is far better, they're, they're still not complete until they get their resurrected body and they are in a physical location. This physical location. This world. You see? Now when you think of things that way, you don't think of the world as being a vehicle that just is kept on chugging along like my 1995 Honda City that keeps on chugging along to transport mankind from one place to another until we find them leave it and get to a better place. This world itself is important. This world itself will be redeemed. It's very important that we understand that and that we incorporate that into our biblical outlook. If we have an eschatology, if we have a, a doctrine of the end times that has all you know whisking off. This planet, and this planet's just all sort of destroyed, and, and we're all in heaven. Uh, that's not a biblical outlook. Um, did I talk about the creation project last week? I mentioned it. I mentioned it? Okay, well, it'll come up again and again. But Yeah, this is what I mean by, by project. Uh, when he creates the world... He's, uh, he's committed himself to a project. Just like when John starts something, okay, he's got a project and he wants to see it through. Okay, when I start something, I'm not sure if I'll see it through because I'm not sure if I can do it. But um, God certainly knows what he's doing. God is, is all wise. He, he knows ahead of time exactly what he's going to do and he's not thwarted by anything, uh, which means that he's not through with this world, with this planet, with this cosmos. Alright? Very important. Therefore, we should view the world, even in its fallen state, as something that God cares about. So, straight away there, I've given you an apologetic Christian view of ecology, of an, uh, environmentalism, haven't I? Okay? Which is not based on going around hugging trees and trying to be, you know, trying to be simpatico with the apes and the birds and the, you know, whatever. It's, it's based on a clearly defined hierarchy within nature, but also a belonging that we have to nature because everything has been created for man by a good God 
who wants to meet man, physical man, he wants to meet man in that physical environment. All right, now, uh, this does not mean that heaven is a non-physical place. Why? Can somebody tell me if we jump ahead several thousand years into the future? Well, who's in heaven? Who's physical? Yeah, yeah, Jesus is in heaven. He's a physical human being. And, you know, he's not dropping through the clouds or anything like that, trying to, you know, flap his arm to keep up in a, a, a cloudy kind of atmosphere. He's on solid ground. Do you see that? Because if we are, uh, if he's exalted to heaven to a throne and he's a man and Elijah went there, didn't he? And... Um, well, won't, won't go there, but, but other people seem to have gone there. Um, pretty soon, you were going to uh, have uh, a guy that's whisked off there after 365 years down here because he pleased God physically. So, there's nothing, you see, there's nothing in our understanding of, uh, of heaven that should cause us to think of it as being, again, just kind of ethereal realm, non-physical realm. Just think about that for a while, a um, couple of years. Um, okay, a uh, little break. Can we open a, a door, back door, something door, in order to get some airflow? Maybe that back door too, guys, if you don't mind, so we can get some airflow going here. Thank you. Um, this terminology, uh, the creation project, God's words and God's actions, uh, you're going to hear it over and over again. So, for example, Colleen, because you weren't there, Toby, because you weren't there last week, you're going you're gonna to find out what it is anyway, even if you, you skip something. Okay, let's have a look then again at verses uh, 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. God said, let us, speaking to himself, remember we dealt with that, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Uh, He doesn't say that of the animals, he doesn't say that of the birds, he doesn't say that of the creeping things or the plants. He says that, and it's, it's kind of, as there's almost a, a hiatus, a little pause there, where God is deliberating with himself before the creation of, of man and woman. That, this means that, that um, however lowly we may be in our own circumstances, we are incredibly privileged. Sometimes I want to be a dog. Okay, because dogs seem to have a good time of it, or a cat, because cats do what they want to do all the time. Okay, all they demand of you is being fed, mm-hmm. um, being let in when they want to be let in. But um, really, we are tremendously privileged to be human beings. It's an astonishing privilege. We are far above uh, the animals. 
we've been been given dominion over the the animals and that dominion starts with us reflecting the image of God, being representatives for God in the world. Uh, That, by the way, is what uh, worship ought to be. And I'll I'll come back to this at different times. But um, Francis Schaeffer, you heard of Francis Schaeffer? Okay. So Francis Schaeffer talked about man's role as being the one who interprets creation and verbalizes its glories back to God because he's the only one who has the language. Um, So he looks at it, he analyzes it, he finds things in it and then he doesn't pat himself on the back. What he does is he goes out to the creator and says, you're amazing. And I've thought this through. By the way, so uh, this means that, that worship is never mindless. Do you see that? Because you think through what God has done. You, you, you're thinking all the time, interacting with the world. And then worship is expressed in words back to God. You know, the Puritans like to say worship is words. You know, not touchy-feely feelings and so on. Feelings are are appropriate and they're good, but they can also be inappropriate and bad. Um, Worship is is expressed in words. And even our grasping after the right words to describe the glory of God is in itself an exercise in worship. Do you see that? Or it ought to be. Um, So... So this all involves worship from the very beginning. God is the only one that can be worshipped or ought to be worshipped because he's God. Um, God can't allow an angel to be worshipped. So in the book of Revelation, an angel is worshipped and he says, don't worship me, worship God. Uh, an angel can't be worshipped because an angel's a creature. Um, there's somebody higher There's somebody greater, infinitely greater, who deserves that. It would be irrational of God to permit worship to any other being but himself. It would be irrational of me to permit worship to me. Do you see that? Because of who I am. But God, it is perfectly rational, which means that when Jesus is worshipped and accepts it, He is claiming to be God. Just that very thing. And uh, the image of God here is is most probably, it's not really, uh, we're not really told what it is, but it it is most probably our uh, intellectual faculties, our creative faculties, our, our relational faculties. Uh, I said last week, remember, that we can think about something, then we can think about what we're thinking about, and then we can think about the fact that we're thinking about what we're thinking about. You might not believe that, but you can try it. Okay, so you can think about, you know, that doorknob over there, and then you can think about thinking about the doorknob. I'm thinking about the doorknob. And then I can think about why am I thinking about the doorknob? Do you see? which is probably what you're thinking too. But, but we can do that. That's amazing that we can, we can go back like that. 
We have that, that faculty. Now, by the way, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the atheist, and this unfortunately is the, the prevailing view in cognitive science, the atheist only has two options, two uh, explanations for this. Either this consciousness is kind of an accident. In other words, uh, you know, evolution uh, brought us this far and uh, made us conscious, conscious as it were, or made us think that we were conscious. <laughs> and consciousness really is is just what's called an epiphenomenon. In other words, it's just a, an add-on or an extra uh, that you get because you got all of this stuff. All right, I, I'm not. I can't think of an analogy, uh, but sometimes you. I don't know. You might. Uh, those of you that can cook, you mix stuff together, and you get in the mixing of it together, you get something else from the mixing of it. Yeah, maybe a flavour that that wouldn't be there in the natural ingredients and so on. That's that's the kind of thing that they think consciousness is. It's a pretty amazing thing as a as an add-on. That's not an explanation, is it? Uh, or uh, this is the prevailing view. The prevailing view is that we're just machines, and they liken our consciousness and our intentionality and so on to a, a laptop computer, which is really dumb because laptop computers need programming, and they will only do and function in the way that they have been told to function. You see? Even if they eventually function in a, some kind of a free way, they've been designed to function in that way. Do you see? Which gives the lie to the fact that we got here and can do more amazing things by pure random chance. Yet, uh, consciousness is part of the image of God. Consciousness uh, also Gives, brings with it uh, an understanding and an interaction with the physical world. That uh, interaction with the physical world brings upon us the realization of the existence of God, according to Paul in Romans 1. Um, the reason it doesn't in many famous people is because they've dulled that sense. They've lied to themselves and like people that you know believe a lie and believe a lie, they eventually or sorry, hear a lie, hear a lie, hear a lie. They believe it. And that lie is a, a kind of a, a mental cage that they can't escape from. But uh, the Bible declares that, that we are always even actually within ourselves when we're, we're musing for ourselves, what, you know, why am I here? What's the point of all this? And why is, you know, what's, what's my meaning, my significance? When we're doing that, we're actually showing uh, that there is uh, a God who, we, who can answer that question. In other words, the question itself uh, means that there, the answer must be God. Uh, we'll get back to that, don't worry, I'm not trying to get um, in too much here, but I want you to at least start to think about these things. Okay? <clears throat> uh, there was something else I wanted to say. Oh yes, yeah, it was this. This is speculative. But not tremendously speculative. 
There are places in Scripture that say that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. There are places in the scripture which tell us that God knew that he would have to send Christ. That means he would have to send a human being or or his son in the form of a human being before he even created any other human beings. Before the world began. So, if if that's the case, that means that uh, God... Uh, had a pattern, a prototype, if you want to call it that, for uh, human beings, before human beings were created. I'm saying this is somewhat speculative, but not. it's not too far out. You say, well, what kind of a teaching would that be? It wouldn't be a C1 teaching, would it? Direct quotation. It wouldn't even be a C2, because you can't get there um, by a clear C1 uh, quotations coming to an inevitable conclusion. It's a debatable conclusion. But I think it is a C3. In other words, you can put together a pretty good explanation there that makes sense of things. And if it was a C4, I'd say kick it out and it's no good. Is the, therefore, is the physical body of Christ, of Jesus, even before he actually showed up in the book of Matthew, um, is the physical body really the, the type, the, the prototype, sorry, of our bodies? And I think it, it's, it glorifies God more to say yes than to say God decided that he was going to make us like this and then decided, oh, okay, well, you're going to have to be one of them then, you see? You're going to have to become one of them to die for one of them. Or a bunch of them. So I, I like it the other way around. I like it that... that uh, now, I intend to make these, but I will... I, will, um, I know they will fall and uh, they will be made in accordance with the pattern that... Uh, you know, it's an eternal pattern uh, that you will assume when you die for them, when you rise for them. Um, is the body part of the image? I don't think so. Now, if you read a lot of Old Testament commentaries and theologies, which I'm sure you all do, then you will find out that many contemporary, contemporary Old Testament scholars, even evangelicals, will say that the body is the image, or at least is the main idea of the image. And the reason for that is because uh, they, uh, the, in the ancient world they thought of the function of things uh, more than uh, the identification of uh, something's characteristics. I reject that view, so do many other people, and so do people like Calvin and smarter big guys than me. I reject that view uh, because, first of all, of the wording of Genesis that we're going to look, look at soon. Um, also, uh, I reject it because we, we don't go outside of the Bible to interpret the Bible. I don't care what the pagans were doing. They're fallen. 
I mean, some of them were, you know, dragging, screaming people up their uh, step pyramids, peeling their skin off and rolling them down the pyramids. That's what the Aztecs did and so on. So, that just means they're depraved. That just means that their thinking is twisted. So, in order to get the right interpretation of things, you don't go to the pagans, who, by the way, came after the fall, after the, what we're reading about here. If we want to know about what was going on here, we've got to read the Bible. That's the only way of knowing. Um, so, I think that that's the, the best way of looking at things. Okay. Are we all okay on this? I know I'm throwing quite a bit at you. Are you all right on this so far? All right. Um, So God created man in his own image, verse 27. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. That's a summary statement. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, uh, exercising a, a dominion over it. Now, some people talk about man uh, operating as a kind of a sentinel in the garden because of some of the, uh, the words that are used. I reject that view, and I'll tell you why in a second. But used to subdue it, that means that it, it's perfect, but it needs some work. So God has here made it so it's just right for man now to start working on it. Do you see? And again, do you see that this implies that man is to take what God has done and do something with it. So that means in heaven again, or when Christ comes back here, we're not just going to be sitting around playing harps or, or you know, looking at trees, listening to the birds, getting bored after a million years of doing that. We'll be doing things. We'll be using the creative powers that we've got, but we'll be using them to God's glory and they won't be sullied by our sin nature. So we won't be uh, making corrupt images and, and ugly buildings and and grotesque paintings or, you know, uh, lewd stuff or whatever. We'll be doing everything to the glory of God. And just imagine, by the way, the things that man without sin, under the guidance of Christ, will be able to make. Okay? Make NASA look like tinker toys. Um, So... um, He's to subdue it, and in subduing it, I hope that you can see what do we have. Well, we have a purpose, that's what this fancy word means, and we have, obviously it's going to be brought to a consummation, so the teleology and the eschatology, the culmination of things, and the purpose that it's driving to, do you see? These things go together right from the very beginning, this is why um, some of my stuff is somewhat controversial in some uh, areas. I should tell you this. Uh, because, uh, because some of my dispensational friends, and I'm considered a dispensationalist, uh, 
uh, they just want to tack it all on the end and just talk about it when it comes to the end. Uh, I will later, but thank you for the question. Um, whereas what I want to do is I want to start right at the very beginning and say, no, the, the, the Bible is eschatological, not just, you know, the end time stuff. The Bible is moving towards that. So what we want to do when we often talk about the end times is that we want to start like, uh, you know, year one in the tribulation and move into the millennial kingdom. But there's a movement from one point to another, do you see? But it's right at the end of, of, of things. Well, I'm just saying that that movement needs to start at creation and move towards the consummation and new heavens and new earth. That's what I'm saying. And what that does is that shows you, uh, gives you a momentum for interpreting the Bible. It, it kind of helps you to, to notice that when you're reading the Bible, it's moving. Do you see? And it also helps you to position yourself within that movement. So that you're, now, you can't find yourself in the Bible, but, but you and I are part of that movement. Do you see? We're part of the creation project. And we have things to do to add to that project instead of detract from it, which is what we're very good at. Um, so dispensationalism, what is it? Uh, there are two basic views, I'll just boil it down to this, there are two basic views of uh, the interpretation of the Bible. One is called covenant theology. Uh, covenant theology basically teaches that uh, God has, is a covenantal God in his being. And so when he establishes any kind of work, it's a covenantal work. Particularly when it comes to man and his relationship with man. So that being the case, um, when we get to Genesis chapter 2, which we will soon, um, you'll be relieved to know, then they say that God made a covenant with man there. You know, don't eat of that tree over there. They say that's a covenant. Well, obviously, that went pear-shaped pretty quickly. So, um, he established another one in chapter 3. And because he uh, established another one in chapter 3, which they call the covenant of grace, uh, they say everybody, all of the elect, all of the saved people and those that would be saved, they're all under the umbrella of the covenant of grace. That means there's one people of God. Well, in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, you have an awful lot of Israel, nation, land, Jerusalem, you know, this hill, Hermon and stuff, yes? Um, and then when you get into the New Testament, it's church, which is, you know, is going towards the New Jerusalem and so on. Um, so it appears from that that you've got at least two groups there. The nation of Israel to whom promises are made and then the church to whom promises are made. Well, covenant theology can't handle that. Covenant theology says, no, there's one people of God 
from beginning to end. And so they, they find the church in the Old Testament. So you've got an old King James, you see. So in the old King James, the, the notes in the Old Testament, you know, Christ's church going through difficult times, and it's talking about the judges. Yes? That's because of covenant theology. You know, they're reading the church back into the Old Testament. So if you read like the Westminster Statement of uh, Confession of Faith, uh, you read the, the 1689 uh, Second London Baptist Confession, the Savoy Declaration, these, these great confessions of faith, uh, they all say that the church is Israel now. Okay? Because they're all built on this, this premise of covenant theology. Um, that means if you're a covenant theologian, there's no future for national Israel. There's no future for the country of Israel. Do you see? So what you, how are you going to interpret the Old Testament that has all of this Israelite language and all this promise of, of future blessing? Well, you say the church is the new Israel and so you read the Old Testament in terms of the New Testament. And you just apply spiritually, you apply um, New Testament categories that you understand them as back into the Old Testament. You just read the, your theology back into the Old Testament. You see? When somebody says, well, Oya, just a minute, you know, it's talking about Israel here, you just say, yeah, but the church is a new Israel now. It's inherited the promises. So that's covenant theology. Dispensationalism, though, which was a question, um, dispensationalism teaches that uh, God has administrations that he puts men under, certain stewardships, dispensation, okay? that he puts men under. For example, in the uh, Garden of Eden, uh, there was innocence. Okay, After that, well, there wasn't any innocence after that, so it was conscience. Uh, then there was human government under Noah, and then there was promise under Abraham, and then law under Moses, and then in the New Testament, grace, the gospel, the church, whatever, yes? And you look out, you look for the, these different phases, as it were, and interpret the Bible that way. In, in that outlook, you can have Israel's promises stay Israel's promises. And the church's promises, the church's promises. Um, and I'm, so, so now get, getting back to what I said, I'm somewhat of a controversial dispensationalist, dispensationalist, um, but I'm not ready to tell you why yet, okay? But I, but I am. And uh, it's not that I disagree with the main tenets of dispensationalism. I don't. I'm pre-tribulational. I uh, believe in a literal antichrist. I believe in uh, restoration of the nation of Israel. I believe that Christ will come back and reign on this world, in this world as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings and also the Son of David. Uh, and all these other dispensational things that you're supposed to believe in as a dispensationalist. I just don't go crazy on dispensations. I focus on the covenants. Do you see? On the biblical covenants. So what you'll see as you go through, if you stick with this course, is you'll see me barely mentioning the dispensations at all. Because they're just tertiary. They're not really that important. They're there. Some of them are. 
but they're not really that important. You certainly shouldn't interpret the Bible by them because the Bible doesn't interpret itself by them. The Bible interprets itself by the covenants that God makes. Do you see? That's where all the emphasis is. We don't read about the Abrahamic dispensation. We read about the Abrahamic covenant. We don't read about the Noahic dispensation. We read about the Noahic covenant. So the emphasis needs to be on the covenant where the Bible puts it. That's where my difference is. And I told you I wasn't going to tell you that. But I'm going to, I'll say more about that later in, uh, when I do a little bit of a critique on that. But as far as, as uh, am I going to teach you any heresy that's going to disagree with your statement of faith? No. No. You're, you're, you've got a dispensational statement of faith which teaches a, a division between Israel and the church, a pre-tribulational uh, rapture and so on, and I hold toward those positions. All right. I don't even know why that came up now. Because you mentioned dispensationalism and in all of our conversations, I never ask. Oh. I get to the end of the conversation and I have no bloody idea what you're talking about. Oh. And you've said, Tiffany, just interrupt me and ask because you use these words that I'm like, uh... Oh, I'm sorry. So that's why I asked you that. All right. So now you know what I've been talking about all this time. Okay, so... Um, so, God is, um, on verse 28, to subdue and have dominion and authority uh, working over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, everything that moves on the earth. And God said, see, now he's ta- who is he talking to? He's talking to man. See, I have given you Every herb that yields seed, God said herb. You know, it's part of the fall that over here you say herb, but that'll get rectified. Um, which is on the face of all the earth and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food and it was so. So here you can see that man has given this responsibility as a steward over the earth, over the the creation. Then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. It was originally, it was originally very good. And it will be again. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And then we've got a chapter break. Okay. God didn't put the chapter break in there. Um, really, we should read it until chapter 2, verse 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, that is, set it apart because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Um, I can't really go into this, and it, it doesn't come out as well in English, but you have a really interesting phenomenon here uh, between chapter 1 and verse 1, particularly in well, a few verses after, but particularly verse 1, and uh, uh, what we see here in chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 through 3, uh, particularly in verse 3. What you have is what's called a chiasm. 
um, a chiasm is named after the Greek letter chi. And a Greek letter chi looks like this. Okay? It looks like an X. Now, by the way, this is a freebie. If you've ever seen this and say, (gasps) we can't say Xmas. We need to put Christ in there. Well, chi is the first letter in Christ. It's k, 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 ch sound. Okay? That's not an X. That's a chi. Do you see? It should be chimus. <laughs> it's just short for, uh, for Christmas. Okay? Not that it really matters very much because I'd still rather put Christ in there. But, um, I mean, that, that's the problem right there, isn't it? That's more of a problem than this, surely. Am I being controversial? Um, I should be safe in a Protestant church. <clears throat> so, um, we have this, this, this arrangement between the beginning of Genesis 1 and uh, Genesis 2 verse 3 where it opens up in a certain way and it closes in a certain way showing you at verse 3 of chapter 2 that that's the end of that section that section also is remarkable for the repetition of of different words like good (laughs) um, or phrases and also for uh, sevens the use of of sevens and multiplications of seven which I won't go into because it's in the Hebrew but it's there, it's quite amazing uh, seven, even the idea of seventh has this idea of completion, by the way. The actual word itself in the Hebrew. So, you can see that it's very structured. It is stylized. And because it's somewhat stylized, you get these old earthers coming in and say, see, it's stylized. It must be poetry or it must be something or other. And you're not supposed to take it literally. Well, just because it's stylized, like the... Declaration of Independence is, for example, or many other famous, you know, things are, it doesn't mean you're not supposed to take it literally. It just means it's stylized. That's all it means. But it sets you going in the direction of, okay, so it's God's done his bit, and now we're into what man can do with it. Uh, Exodus chapter 20 verse 11 if somebody can go there alright for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy ok so uh, what's going on there in that verse What's happening is that uh, he's talking about the Sabbath, God giving commandments to Moses and the rest of Israel about the Sabbath, seventh day. And the reason that he gives for uh, ceasing work on the Sabbath is because that's what God did on the seventh day. He, he, he worked six days and rested the seventh day. Now, if God didn't really work six days, he, he worked billions of years, then the seventh day 
why even refer to it? Do you see? He's referring to it because he did, like Genesis 1 tells us, he did work six days and then rested the seventh day. Resting doesn't mean, you know, that he kicked back and, and uh, took it easy for a while. It just meant that he ceased. The, the word Shabbat, Sabbath, it means to cease. That's what the word means. Cease from the activity. What we find then uh, from the end of the sixth day and moving into the rest of creation, what we find is a shift from creation to providence. Providence is God maintaining and upholding what he's created. <clears throat> All right. The seventh day, by the way, is not Sunday. Okay, the seventh day, the Sabbath is it's Saturday, our Saturday. Okay. Um, so again, what, what we find in uh, in covenant theology, remember we we did covenant theology in the way they spiritualize the Old Testament and apply it to the church. So they do that with the Sabbath. They say, well, yeah, we know that the in, the Israelite Sabbath was on Saturday, but now church is a new Israel, and uh, Christ rose on um, on a Sunday, and the church started on a Sunday. So, since the church is now the new Israel, we have a Christian Sabbath and that's a Sunday. doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible, but can you see what's happening? Uh, just what I said, the inference is based on another inference, based on another inference, and there's no scripture to be found that says that. But these people are absolutely clear on, on it because they, like all of us, we tend to really put a lot of uh, treasure in our own thinking, in our own logic, instead of just saying, well, that's what God says, so I'm just going to believe it. Because faith some, sometimes can't figure out what, why God did a certain thing, a certain way. Right, you're right. Yeah. So the problem's God's, isn't it? It really is. It's not, it's not our problem to figure out, it's His. So, uh, moving on to verse 4 then. This is the history. Now, the word that you have uh, coming up here is, is Toledot. And uh, you don't have to worry about it. It just You, you have a bunch of them uh, coming up, the account or the generations of and so on. When you see that, that those are divisions in the book of Genesis. Um, when you see those. And that's the first one. Uh, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day. Now, that's not a 24-hour day. That's covering all of them, do you see? That the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice here, verse 4, Lord God. Lord God. Now, in chapter 1, you had God, and the word there was Elohim. Now you have Lord God. Uh, you should have capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Do you see that? Okay, when you see that, usually in your English translations, that's not Elohim. Uh, you can see it this way, capital that way, but it's normally 
Lord. It's translated Lord. And it's this word here. Okay. Do you see it? Y-H-W-H. Which in the Hebrew you can't, you can't stick vowels into. It's really difficult to pronounce. Um, it's really, it's, it's difficult to do. It's, it's impossible actually. Um, cause we don't, and we don't know the vowels that were supposed to go in there. Um, because of Jewish tradition, dumb Jewish tradition, that said that, you know, we shouldn't pronounce the name of God. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. But again, it's human, you know, inferences. That's what we do. So what, what we did here is that uh, we took this and uh, we took the word for, which is often Lord or Master or something like that, Adonai, which is also uh, a Hebrew word that's applied to God. And he got the vowels, you see, here, in there, in Yahweh, you see? And you just, uh, from the German, this comes into a J, and you get Jehovah from that. So that's where Jehovah comes from. So Jehovah's Witness, when he thinks he's pronouncing the name of God, he's actually doing this. He just doesn't know it. Um, but this this word here is now Yahweh. Now, now Yahweh will be the name that God wants to be known by. Uh, many scholars say it's God's personal name. And uh, isn't it so ironic that you can't, call him the name that he calls himself because these Jews wouldn't remember the name because they thought it was pious not to do that. Okay, That's just the way we are, guys. We're always doing things like that. You know, we, we're always trying to be more pious than God. And uh, it's unfortunate because we miss out and we mess things up. So, um, so what we have then is um, the first use of Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is usually a covenant name, but it's not a covenant name here. There's no covenant that's made. When we get to covenants, we will uh, examine them and we'll show you why. But God uh, is telling um is calling himself Yahweh even at this early stage. The significance of the name will not be known until, um, well, really, until Moses. So, verse 5, Before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. So what we have here is another account, which is a parallel account, but what we have is a, is a focusing in now of the creation of man. And chapter 2 is not another creation account written by somebody else who didn't read chapter 1. It's It's an account of the same writer of chapter 1 now focusing in thematically 
on man. Do you see that? So it's more thematic. It doesn't mean that there isn't a chronology there because, as we'll see, he's talking about Eden uh, particularly. Um, But this is how things started off. No man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. That was before day six. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Now, in ancient, the ancient uh, uh, creation myths, man is almost godlike when he's first created. Those that do talk about creation of man, he's almost godlike. In the Bible, he's created from dirt. Okay, I mean, straight from the offset, we're nothing. We're just dirt bags. We're just uh, was it that Paul says? I can't think. Jars of clay. That's what we are. Earthen vessels, which is a better translation, I think. Um, we're earthen vessels because it reminds us of Genesis. And um, this maybe will we'll throw into relief the wonder of the resurrection. And what grace, the love of God and the grace of God has done to not just restore us back to where we were in, in Eden, but to give us something so much greater. But I'm getting ahead of myself. It says here that um, he formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being or a living soul. Um, life in the Bible is not plants aren't alive in the Bible. Okay, it's even it's possible that even some insects aren't alive and so on. Uh, the life of the flesh is in the blood. The Bible says in Leviticus seventeen eleven, and um, uh, just because your modern naturalist textbooks describe life in a certain way, that doesn't mean the Bible has to do that. The Bible has its own definitions of things. Uh, so, you, you, again, you see God is doing something with man that he hasn't done with the animals. He didn't call the birds alongside and start breathing inside them, but he does with man. And uh, this means there is a two-stage creation of man. He's, he's that special. Breathing into his nostrils, his breath, the breath of his life, his divine life. And man became a living soul, a corporeal soul in the image of God. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed. Eden means delight. You should make a note of that. Eden means delight or delightful. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Are you with me there? Have you done the delight thing yet? Okay, then notice this. Pleasant to the sight and good for food. Please underline that if you do underline in your Bibles. Two things. Pleasant to the sight and good for food. The 
The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's he doing? He's setting you up for a story, isn't he? Now a river went out of Eden to the water of the garden and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon and it is one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hiddekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. All right. What's he describing? Is he describing things as they were after the flood or before the flood? Because the flood messed things up quite a lot. He is describing it in the present tense, isn't he? Um, it refer, But it refers to Eden as though it's it's still there um, so some people say and I can't um, you know I can't be the definitive on this some people say that this is a description excuse me of Eden before the fall so there's no point going looking for this place or any of these rivers because they're not there this is what they were called and this is where they ran out of and uh, that's the way it is or some say, uh, we don't know where some of the rivers are, like Pishon, and we don't know where Havilah is, and so on. But we know the Tigris, Hiddekel, Tigris, and we know Euphrates. So, maybe this is a description of where Eden was, from the perspective of somebody, Moses, after the flood. Do you see? If it's the latter, then that would position um, Eden around about Israel and going east. All right? With the garden somewhere east. But we don't know. My feeling is that this is a description in the present tense. Uh, in Greek, it would be a historic present. Um, Mark uses it a lot, you know, um, when he, uh, Mark talks about and, and, uh, Jesus, look, uh, sorry, um, uh, what's his name? Peter, uh, rushes into the tomb. What, well, was he doing it now? No. It's, but he, he's putting you where the action is, do you see? It's a historic present. So I think that's maybe what's going on here. It's just, just putting you into that scene. But I might be wrong. I don't know. But uh, anyway, that's my, my view. We don't know where Eden was. We just know that it's not in America and not in Europe and it was somewhere in the East. The focus is going to be in what we call the Middle East. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. That means he was created outside of the garden. And he was put in a place that was particularly created for him and it was delightful, called delightful by God, but it was delightful not just for God, it was delightful for man. So God 
is not just, he's not content with just making a, a wonderful world. Now he makes an incredible garden in that world for man to start in and start his work in. God is concerned with beauty. He's concerned with man's interaction with and delighting in what he's made. Do you see this? He wants us to delight in what he's made. He wants us to to look at a sunset or an eclipse or a, a, a flower or, you know, whatever and just marvel at it. That's what we should do because these marvels are all around us, even in a, a fallen and post-flood world. <clears throat> and... Um, I've lost my place here. Yeah, put him in there to uh, tend it and to keep it. Not to just be bone idle in it, but to actually work in it. Work's a good thing. It's only been made bad by this curse. But, you know, none of us in here like lolling around doing nothing. (laughs) I mean, there's... You know, I, I'm a pastor in Willits and sometimes you wonder whether some of the population there has a different view. <laughs> but, but most people don't like to just do nothing. Um, even, you know, even fallen people. So work is something that we're supposed to do. It's something we're designed for. And just imagine if we could take the abilities and the skills and the individuality that God has given to us, and each of us, individually but working together, uh, could could um, create something in the world to the glory of God, and improve things, take it to its consummation. That's what the kingdom, I think, is for, in some senses anyway. But that's the way that it was set up. So again, there's this, this purpose that's, that's in the creation of man. The words tend and keep in verse 13, 15, 15, uh, they have the, um, that they intimate a guarding like a sentinel and a keeping like a priest. They are used of the officers in the temple um, later on in the book of Exodus and so on. This has led some people, modern scholars, again, modern scholars tend to fall into this, to say that Eden was a good place, that was cool, but outside of Eden wasn't so cool. And so... Adam was created to not only dress and improve Eden, but to defend it. That obviously would mean that outside of the garden wasn't very delightful. There were critters out there, you know, monsters out there. One of them, they say, being the serpent who snuck in. Um... The Bible doesn't say that. If you go that way, and whole massive books are being written uh, about this, then you will also extrapolate and you'll start to say, well, okay, so 
he had to defend the garden. That means it was his responsibility uh, that the serpent got in. So it was Adam's fault that the serpent got in and he shouldn't have let the serpent in. Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Yes, it does. It also negates the title for the land because it's not just the garden that's called delightful. The whole land of Eden is called delightful. And it's not delightful if he has to protect the garden from what's out in the other delightful area. Okay? Do you see? It doesn't work. Just from a plain reading, it doesn't work. I know it sounds great. And, uh, I mean, they, they, I, I've got a book, which I'll bring at some point, uh, which is over a thousand pages thick with footnotes and all this stuff, uh, that, that extrapolates on this stuff. And, uh, it's a, it's a, well, some, some of us are called, as teachers, some of us have to read this stuff. <laughs> Um, and you, you, uh, if you want to, if you want to read my review of that book, um, yeah, I'll write it down here. Maybe I'll give it you as my, as a piece of homework. <clears throat> uh, my blog is, uh, Dr. Reluctant. Don't ask why. It was given to me because uh, I was reluctant to start a blog. Okay, basically, so somebody, my wife and this other guy, they were the ones who got me writing a blog. So this is at Dr. Reluctant at um, WordPress.com, and uh, in the book reviews, there's uh, a uh, New Testament biblical. Theology. That's the book review. Okay, so you can look at and uh, it's called because I called it something instead of just a review of this. I called it the future of an allusion, which I thought was pretty clever actually. Um. Because this guy is always talking about allusions to things. Okay, God can't say it straight. I mean, he just has to elude things. You know, he's a, as I put it in the review, he's the god of the nod and the wink. You know, you know the Monty Python sketch. You know, nod, nod. Uh, was it? Not. Uh, what is it? Nod, nod, wink, wink. Say no more. That one. <laughs> anyway, so. Uh, that's what this is, okay? The future of an illusion. If you want to read that, then uh, that will show you at least um, some of it of what he writes in the book. Other people do this too, but he's, he's the main one. Um, even though certainly um, the words, the Hebrew words, do have that idea, um, they don't have to be interpreted in a negative sense as of protecting and guarding. They can be also used in a, a sense of, of just 
tending and keeping. Uh, but probably in the sense of there's work to be done. There's, there's, you know, there's stuff that you've got to do. You can't relax here. Um, anyway. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man. Now here, this is it's really important that if God's going to command man to do something, it is prerequisite that man understands what God is commanding. There's no point in me commanding my dog, okay, not to, I don't know, bite himself on the backside or something like that. If he's got fleas, he's a dog, he's going to do that. He's not going to understand what I say, is he? Um, He can only understand if he's been given the ability to understand the message that I'm giving. So this this command presupposes that Adam has the ability to understand concepts. Do you see? Look at the command, uh, or the, the prohibition. Of every tree. So he's got to differentiate every. He's got to know what a tree is. Uh, he's got to know what the garden is. You know, that, oh, well, this, I'm in a garden, am I? Yeah, he's got to know that before God commands him anything. Freely. He's got to know what that means. Eat. What does that word mean? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, he's got to know something of the content of those words. Knowledge, good, evil. Do you see? It's all right. I know what you're going to say, but I'll come back to that. But he's got to at least grasp that. He can't say, you know, uh, the tree of the scrunget and the wibbly-wop and the... Uh, flipping, you know, it's like, what? Uh, Obviously, he's going to know something about the concepts, do you see? All right. And um, you shall not eat. Shall not eat, that's really important that he understands what those words mean. Oh, I'm not supposed to eat that one, do you see? For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so we better understand what that means too. This shows us that the ability to comprehend things was already built into Adam. The language that God used to address Adam presupposes the ability of Adam to understand and analyze that language. Language did not come about by toots and whistles of, you know, in the animal kingdom. It, it was, it came from the mind of God as a, a faculty that was given only to men and women. Animals can't talk and they never will talk. Or, or like, well, I didn't understand what you were talking about. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, man, Adam couldn't do that. Do you see? God was absolutely clear. Meant what He said. It's really important that we we know that when God commands something, He means it. When He promises something, 
He means that too. That's great. That's good news. But this is a this is a prohibition that uh, Adam is given. Um, why? Why does God do this? No, I mean he knows that Adam's going to mess up. He knows what's happening in chapter three. So why does he do this? Well, he does it. Um, we can't really answer all of these questions because they're not answered for us. But but he does it. Uh, not disingenuously. In other words, he doesn't do it as a kind of little game, you know, knowing that Adam's going to fail, but I'm just going to do this anyway. Adam, uh, sorry, God does it sincerely. Sincerely. And yet, that, that must mean that it was necessary. Do you see? It must have been necessary. God would not have done it just for, as a cavalier action for no reason. You know, putting somebody to the test just for the sake of putting them for the te- to the test. And then, and then, guess what? The whole shooting match is up for grabs here. Okay? I mean, God's all in here. There's too much at stake. This is too serious. The ramifications, not only for mankind, but also for God in his relationship with man, in his intention for man, in uh, the sufferings of his son, in the miseries um, of history, in uh, the, uh, the rulership given over to Satan. It doesn't make any sense that this is just a um, you know, afterthought or a capricious act. It's not. Now, obviously, we're given a very condensed version here. Um, but what we're given is extremely significant and it is enough to tell us God meant what he said. Adam understood what God said. Uh, Eve would have understood what God said, but we're not there yet. That... Um, the stakes were as high as they could possibly be and that there was a clear understanding of who Adam should be listening to. Do you see? Of who Adam should be listening to. Because somebody's going to show up and... Uh, few verses time and he's not God he is not even man he's a snake Adam's already uh, looked at him identified him named him why would earth would Adam be listening to him as an authority is equal to God? You see? You've got to think your way through these passages a little bit. A few minutes left. Surely die here, it means both in his soulish 
nature as far as this corruption is this separation from God this is the main idea of, of death but also physically he didn't die physically right away because that's not what in the day in that day you'll surely die in the Hebrew that it doesn't connote that it just means um, you day, the day that you do this it's all going to go pear shaped big time And the Lord God said, now who's he talking to here? Verse 18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Who's he talking to here? Talking to himself, yeah. yeah. But God is looking after the interests of of the man. And... um, at this time in chapter 2, chapter 1 you have the uh, both of them made, but chapter 2 is running up to Adam and then the creation of Eve. Um, Adam's made first and it's not good that he's alone. Uh, being alone is not part of the original plan of God. Some of us have to endure that don't we um, so yeah, I, was, I was, wasn't married until I was 34 better get that right especially with spies here um, but but um, I spent many years uh, alone many years alone I was a Christian. I was I was uh, was a Christian when I was 25, and the truth was the most important thing to me. And I wasn't interested in, you know, most of the girls at church, any of the girls at church actually, because that to me they were superficial. They weren't interested in what I was interested in. You see, now I was a self-righteous so-and-so at that time too, but but I was alone because of that, you know, for many years, and. Uh, it's not the way it's supposed to be, but in this world, sometimes it is the way it has to be. We just we do know this that it won't always be that way, okay? And by the way, if you're if you know people that are alone at certain times of the year, then as as Christians, as believers, you know, look out for them. But um, it's not good that that he's on his top. So. What happens then? Look at this. Look at this. It's really interesting. He doesn't just say, "All right, so I'll make him a helpmate." And the next verse is, "And voila, you know, here's the woman." God could have done that, yes, but that's not what happened. Now it's like we're we're on this subject, and then all of a sudden we're on this subject over here. Look at look at what happens. Um, so I'll make a helper comparable to him then next verse out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call him what's that got to do with anything what's that got to do with what he said in verse 18 and whatever Adam called each living creature that was its name well two things are going on here the first thing is that it's showing that Adam uh, is is um, 
starting to manifest his role as the vice-regent over the creation, over the created order, under the gaze of God. And just as God had named things by his own authority in, in chapter 1, and therefore showing that he had authority over these things to name them, uh, this authority is now given to Adam as he looks at the creatures that he has dominion over, remember. And these creatures come before him, the kinds come before him. And he, he analyzes them and he gives them a name that's appropriate to the features of the characteristics and function of that animal. What is he doing? What branch of learning is that? Science, yes it is, yes. It's science. So science is not anti-biblical. Lots of the science that goes on is anti-biblical, okay? But um, science itself is, is supported by the biblical worldview, right there. Um, and he has authority to do that. This is showing authority. And certainly in the ancient world this is supported. Uh, anyone who had the authority as a name had authority over, power over that thing. Um, so that's the first thing that's happening. Um, but something else is happening here as well. Uh, look at verse um, 20. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to the, every beast of the field. That's Genesis 1. But for Adam, Adam, by the way, it means dirt from the ground, okay? So he's got a name that means dirt, just to remind him he's not a god. Uh, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him because of his function, because of his abilities, not only that, because of the way he looks. There's nobody like him. He, and he, and he, what he's doing, when he's analysing these different animals, he says, well, this is a daddy elephant and a mummy elephant, and a daddy bat and, and a mummy bat, and going through these different creatures. And he's saying, well, these belong together as a couple. Do you see? And, uh, but as he is doing that, there was not found, not found, a helper comparable to him. Well, who's doing the finding? God already knows, doesn't he? He doesn't have to find it out. Who's finding it out? Adam's finding it out. So, under the gaze of God, Adam is now using his mind to learn about things in the world. God's not just showing him, not spoon-feeding him. Do you see? Adam's going to have to find these things out under the gaze of God. So when we get to glory, I'm sure it's going to be like that. There's things that we're going to know, we'll know even as we're known, but there's also loads of stuff that we won't know, but we'll have to go and find out. Under the guidance of God. Do you see that? So now, he's, he's finding this stuff out, and, and while he's finding that out, something else is playing in the background, which starts to come to the foreground, and that means... Hold on a minute. I'm alone. He learns that he's alone, that he's that he doesn't have a match like this, doesn't have a mate. 
Isn't this amazing? I think it's great. Um, that, that God is like that. He, he wants us to learn and explore and, and things to dawn on us. And even now in this fallen world, faith steps in and wants us to, to, to uh, guide our thinking so that we'll, uh, the truth of God will dawn on us. We'll find out things about the world and about God that if we're, if we're looking through the eyes of faith, we'll learn. If we're not th- looking through the eyes of faith, we'll you know, throw up our hands. But we'll learn if, we're, if we are glorifying God by, by walking by faith. And so, this dawns on him, and the, now, now God acts. It's like verses 19 and 20 can be taken out, and verses 18 and 21 can be put together, do you see? But 18 and 19 are very important because of the process. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, so this is not works of any type, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. The rib grows back. Did you know that? The rib is the, I think it's the only bone in the human body. Yeah, Paul? Alright, it actually grows back. So don't look for, you know, like some people say, you can locate. Yes, no, you can't. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. It wasn't that um, he just let her go into Eden looking around until she bumped into Adam and they thought, you know, they thought, okay, let's get together. Okay. God brings her to the man. God has made her for the man and at the right time he brings her to the man. Once the man has learned some lessons. Um, So you have a little marriage ceremony going on there, you see. That's the first marriage. Yeah, absolutely. All right, try not to poke my eye out. So, um, it's it's a wonderful picture, and and the marriage you see is a creation ordinance. Belongs in the Garden of Eden. It's not for a fallen world. It's, It's, or rather, it doesn't start in a fallen world. It's a creation ordinance. Uh, last three verses, Adam said, now here's Adam speaking, this is now bone of my bones, literally, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because, this is what woman means, she was taken out of man. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you two things, one of them, some of you might not like, and the other one is just factual. The one thing it tells you is that Adam looked at her and scientifically she's taken out of man, so he gave her a scientific name, taken out of man. You see that? Secondly, it tells you he had the authority to name her. Do you see that? 
He has the authority to name her. That shows a hierarchy in the Garden of Eden. Now, we've already read in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that they're both made in the image of God. So, as far as their, you know, their being is concerned, they're equal. Completely equal. And their worth before God and all that, they're completely equal. As far as their relationship is concerned, um, it's not egalitarian. The man does have an authority and a responsibility over the woman because God has brought her to him. And uh, <clears throat> they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Uh, this is before the fall. Um, we cannot conceive of what this meant. Um, clothes were not part of the original plan, I guess. And that was alright because there was a purity of understanding and a purity of mind and of motive that didn't see anything wrong with looking at the other person in that way. Well, they wouldn't look at that the person in that way. Do you see? Since the fall, this has become impossible. So, this is not a proof text for nudist colonies. Because, because they were innocent. They, they didn't look at each other that way. Okay? Um, we're now corrupt in our thinking, in our motives, in our, you know, urges and so on. And so we, um, we need to be clothed. We need to cover up. We need to be modest and, and careful in that area. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. So where we've got to then in uh, the first two chapters is, uh, we see that, that creation is a meaningful project. We've already started, uh, the purpose is built into it, we've already started moving now in uh, man being given authority over the animals and to work the land and to improve things and so on under the guidance of God. Uh, we've already started to move towards a consummation. That consummation would have been absolutely glorious had not chapter 3 been there. Um, but God knew that chapter 3 was there and that's why Christ was the, man, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Uh, we've also learned that man is not like the, the creatures. He's not an animal. He's not an animal. The animals are animals. Man is made in the image of God. Uh, he has responsibility. His responsibility, um, if he's doing it properly, will be worshipful. It will express itself in worship. It will be Godward, in other words, uh, in its first intention, in its enunciation. Um, God delights in, in uh, delighting us. 
So he makes Eden for man. The, the aesthetic qualities that we have for beauty, uh, which would be um, enunciated back to God through speech and through analysis and so on, which we see now in painting and we see it in poetry sometimes. Uh, these are all gifts of God and they should be used to give glory to God. They should not, little side advert, whatever, make, you, make of it what you want, but they should not be used for trite expressions of worship. Do I need to say any more than that? For things that are, we're not using our faculties, we're not using our abilities, you know, we're, we're not using our minds, we're using our emotions. We're not saying anything meaningful, but it all sounds good to us. We're not building something to the glory of God like the Baroque in the Baroque period. Instead, we're just building functional things like the Bauhaus and so on because we've forgotten what we're supposed to be. And then uh, it talks about the creation of uh, the, the, the analysis that, that Adam went through in order to realize that he was alone. God meeting that need once Adam had realized. And uh, the, uh, the vested authority in the relationship that the man has in naming the woman. Um, creation, this is the final thing. Creation is to be explored as a work, not as an accident. If you explore it as an accident, like evolutionists do, or as a, something that isn't really there, like Hindus do, you see, you'll have a very different appreciation for it than if you explore it as a work of God. Then you're going to do what Kepler said we should do, what all true science should be, that is thinking God's thoughts after him. That's how we're supposed to function. <laughs>